When the smoke cleared from the most tumultuous and disappointing season in franchise history, it was hard to know what the Vancouver Canucks would do. The past year had seen the Canucks sign Mark Messier, fire president and GM Pat Quinn, fire head coach Tom Rennie, and then hire Mike Keenan, who traded away most of the players that Canucks fans identified with. When I arrived here, certainly I've talked about uh, the cycle of a team and that we had felt that the team had outlived itself, that the cycle of a particular team that, for the most part, went to the 94 finals against the Rangers. Uh, Pat Quinn was very loyal to them and and extended the, the life cycle of that group probably a little bit longer than it should have been extended to, and as a result, it was a trying year for everyone. The team was in desperate need of direction, which left owner John McCaw with two options. Officially turn over the operation to head coach Mike Keenan, who'd already been calling the shots on personnel decisions, or bring in a new general manager to chart a fresh course. After deliberating for a couple of months, McCaw chose door number two and hired Brian Burke as the eighth GM in Canucks history. We put that team back on the map, man. Like, there were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. That line sold tickets. That line cared about the community. That line gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the cup. Everything. The whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever. Brian Burke had been working in the NHL's head office for the past five years after a brief stint as the general manager of the Hartford Whalers. Prior to that, he'd spent a half decade under Pat Quinn as the Canucks director of hockey operations. He knew the league, but more importantly, he knew Vancouver. Those critical details were not lost on the likes of Canucks broadcaster Jim Hewson. It signaled to me that they were trying to attach themselves again to the lovable past because he was a disciple of Pat's and he knew the market. So that in itself, I think, was positive. And Brian was pretty early in his managerial career and he was bombastic and he made headlines and he he knew how to take the pressure off of his team by taking the spotlight on himself. And he always arrived at the right time to say that the right kind of thing that insulated the players from any problems that were going on. So I think it was a bit of a galvanizing influence for the Canucks because as scattered as they were, like everybody was running scared when like Keenan was running the show. The trainers were not sure if they were going to make it till the next day. There was never a day when everybody wasn't on edge. The assistant coaches felt that way. It was just the way Mike ran his teams. And he liked the idea that everybody was on edge that everybody was a little fearful of their jobs. So Burke came in and offered a little stability. Burke echoed those sentiments at his introductory press conference. I hope my first impact is to stop the waves this organization has been through, battered by storm after storm, Burke proclaimed. And his starting point for calming the waters was the paying customer. Well, the fans, they objected to a number of things. I would call all the season ticket holders that gave up their season tickets. I would call anyone with four accounts. And then when I got through the four accounts, I would call anyone with two tickets in their account. And they all said the same thing. One, 
they'll never get over that Pat Quinn got fired. Like Pat Quinn was beloved by everyone, like including me. They'll never get over that. Number one, number two, they'll never get over that Trevor Lenny got traded. You know, people to this day, Canuck fans from my era, my age, I'm 66. They'll never get over that. They'll never forgive or forget that. And the third thing was they did not like Mike Keenan. He was not well-liked. They didn't like Mark Messier a little bit less, but there's a lot to not like. Pad Quinn wasn't coming back, and Trevor Linden was now captain of the New York Islanders. Mike Keenan's future, however, fell under Burke's control. A pair of headstrong, combative, fiery hockey men forced into a working relationship. What could go wrong? From reporters like Ian McIntyre to players like Corey Hirsch, to colleagues like assistant GM Dave Nonis, everyone knew what was coming. Keenan had played an up-tempo, aggressive style. He liked rock'em, sock'em hockey, and so did Brian Burke. In that way, they weren't very different. But everybody knew that this was an untenable relationship between Keenan and Burke. That Keenan was there, Burke came in, he said, yeah, he could try to work with the coach. Most people knowing that it wasn't going to work. And it didn't. Oh, we knew that. Oh, God, we all knew that. Now you've got two guys that like to have the power, right? Keenan always wanted to be GM and coach. That was his thing. Everywhere he went, I want to be GM and coach because then he's got control over the players he gets on the ice. Well, when Berkey came in, Keenan lost that. You knew it was only a matter of time. And and those two were dysfunctional, I think is probably a good way of putting it. You know, Mike had his own way of doing things. First of all, I I really enjoyed Mike, particularly away from the rink. I had my run-ins with him when I was at the league and just the way he did things. He had a way of coaching and motivating and it worked for him obviously in, in New York. And I think he wanted to continue that. He also had a larger say before we got there and personnel moves. So we tried, I know Brian really tried to make that work, but it was clear pretty early on that we were going to have to make a change. So it was pretty clear to everyone, I think that we weren't going to be able to get along but I vowed to ownership. They made me promise to try. So that's why we went as far as we did and gave Mike Keenan a shot to keep coaching the team. With that promise in place, Burke's next task was to assess the roster he'd inherited. It was headlined by Mark Messier, Alexander McGilney, and Pavel Bure. Despite all of the changes that had taken place in the past year, Bure remained steadfast in his demand to be traded. Coming off a 51-goal season, Burry was coveted by numerous general managers who all knew he wanted to be traded out of Vancouver and who were all trying to lowball Burke with their offers. The whole thing turns on the fact that Pavel Burry refused to play. And I, I told him, I said, if you just give us the month of October and November, play for six weeks, I'll be able to get full value for you. And he wouldn't do it. Rather than take the best deal he'd been offered for Burry, Burke took a hardline stance and decided to let him sit. We're not going to kiss anyone's butt to play here. We have a beautiful arena. We've got our own plane. Uh, and again, you're, you're talking a great hockey market and one of the great cities in the world. So I'm not kissing anyone's behind to play here. That's just not going to happen. He wants out, I'm going to move him. I'm not going to trade him unless it's a trade that makes sense to the organization. It's not a case where the player gets to pick where he goes when he's under contract. Perhaps if one or more of Burray's suitors struggled out of the gate, the offers would improve. As for the rest of the roster, Burke wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And quite frankly, neither were the players. I think it brought in a level of fear almost. So at that point, I'd had Ricky Lee as a coach. I'd had Pat Quinn as a coach. I'd had Tom Rennie as a coach. And I'd had Mike Keenan. 
that was my fourth year in Vancouver. I'd already had four coaches. I had Pat Quinn as a GM. I'd had Brian Burke as a GM. I had Tamby or Keenan or whoever was in charge, right? Patty O'Neill, maybe. I, I, I don't know, right? I don't know who was the GM. So I'm in my fourth season with Vancouver. I've had four coaches and three GMs up to this point. You didn't know what was going to happen. It was, like you said, it was chaos. The team was so bad the year before. Everything was such chaos that now everybody's on eggshells because you know he's going to strip it down. You know Brian Burke's not going to stand for the status quo. You've got pieces here, pieces there. It was like it was the car that was sold for parts. And now you've got whatever's left of the car and you got to figure out what to do with it. Well, no, you scrapped the car, right? There'd been so much turnover that only seven players who'd been in the Canucks lineup for the opening game of the season in 1997 were also dressed for the opener in 98. Marcus Nasland was among the holdovers, but Burke wasn't exactly enamored with the 25-year-old winger. I didn't like Marcus Nasland as a player. Uh, I liked him as a person. It's impossible not to like him, but I thought he was underachieving. I thought he was a classic high pick from Sweden or Finland. Guys that came and, and just, if it didn't happen for them right away, they'd pout. It wasn't going to happen. I couldn't have been more wrong. I thought I'd have to move him again. I thought he's the guy that, you know, he was drafted in Pittsburgh. One of Pat Quinn's, the late, great Pat Quinn's best trades ever, trading for Marcus. But I thought I'd have to trade him again. And I still believe it really took the heart-to-heart I had with him that year to turn him into a player. It wouldn't have been hard to do. There was interest from at least one other GM, Washington's George McPhee. He'd helped get Naslin to Vancouver and was now keen on making him a part of the Capitals. And I remember calling Brian Burke. Marcus wasn't, hadn't broken through yet, wasn't playing a lot. And I had asked Burke uh, if he would be interested in moving him. And uh, I offered him a third round pick. He said, give me a day and I'll give you a yes or a no. And he called me back the next day and said, you know, he's not quite doing it yet. Uh, he's not playing a lot under uh, our current coach, but I, I think I've got to be a little more patient. I said, okay. I wish he wasn't. He asked for a meeting. And I thought he was going to ask for a trade. And I have a rule, which I have not followed since I've modified that rule. But Pat Quinn had a rule. I had a rule. If you ask for a trade, you're gone. So Marcus asked to come see me and he walked in the office. And I said, shut up. Don't say anything. I said, do you sit down and shut up and listen? Because I'm afraid you're going to ask for a trade. And once you do that, it's too late. So hear me out first. I said, I'm not trading you. You'll be here long after the coach is. But I said, in the meantime, you're stealing money, Marcus. You're stealing money. You're not back-checking. You're not forechecking. You're not scoring goals. You're not playing hard. You're a shadow of yourself. You're stealing money. You can't help me win hockey games. And to this day, I think it was almost like he took a pill or something. And I think he went home and had a heart-to-heart with his wife, Loda. But we had a different hockey player the next day. The very next day, we had a different hockey player. Just as someone said, we believe in you, we're not trading you, I think was enough. I believe at least a couple of times, initially with Pat Quinn, and then later on with Brian Burke, I think Marcus asked about getting out. And those managers, to their credit, said, no, no, we're not trading you. Not yet. We believe in you. We think you're going to be essentially, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I wasn't in the room with them, but they thought that he was going to be a really good player. 
and they weren't going to let him take the easy way out. And I know that sounds harsh for Marcus, but Naslin, it's something that he later conceded to me that early on in his career, when things got tough, he didn't really know how to deal with it. And he wanted out of Pittsburgh and then he wanted out of Vancouver and Pittsburgh said yes, but Vancouver said no. And Marcus, because of that, kind of just buckled down and, and got to work at making himself a better player and more consistent player. That journey would not begin from a place of privilege. Naslin barely saw the ice in the first week of the season as Vancouver went 2-2 two and two in its first four games. But in Game 5, there was a spark. Naslin set up the Canucks' game-winning goal against the Capitals and followed it up by scoring his first of the season in a 5-0 romp over the Panthers. Though Vancouver would go winless in the three games that followed, Naslin picked up a pair of points and his ice time began to increase incrementally. Ice time was not an issue for Todd Bertuzzi. His strong finish to the previous season landed him a plum roll on the left side of the Canucks' top line with Messier and McGilney, and he was getting considerable power play time as well under Keenan. I really believe that who's ever coaching can dictate a lot of how everything goes, and Mike was that. Mike instilled confidence in us to be able to go out there and just play hockey and not have to think hockey. There's nothing worse when you're a hockey player. you got to go out and you're thinking, oh, if I have a bad shift, I'm not going to play, or if I do this wrong, I'm not going to see the ice and all that. Mike wasn't about that. He says, as long as you work hard and give an effort, mistakes happen. Nothing is perfect in life. And I think just those conversations with him freed us up to be able to uh, have the confidence in ourselves to go out and play really good hockey. While Bertuzzi wasn't exactly lighting the league on fire, he did register four goals and six points in the Canucks' first eight games and was contributing to a productive top line. Messier had 11 points in that same stretch, McGilney had nine, and Vancouver was off to an adequate start with four wins and four losses. But two games later, Bertuzzi would get hit by a point shot from teammate Matthias Oland and suffer the first of two significant injuries that would define his season. Well, yeah, I had a whole bunch of things. I had, yeah, I had the broken leg. I blew my knee out. So I got off to a tough start there. We had great trainer and Mike Bernstein who stuck with it and helped me out through the summers and all that. And like I said, no path is the same path. It's how you deal with adversity and you find out what you're about when you come through it and all that. So like I said, it was a tough start. Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, heroes for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter... Even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota. Bertuzzi would miss the next two and a half months with that broken leg meaning there was an opening at left wing on Vancouver's number one line. Naslin didn't fill that void immediately as Keenan rotated a number of wingers through that coveted spot. 
but the 25-year-old Swede was impossible to ignore as he continued to pile up points. I was put in as more of a leader position offensively and got the quality ice time and got to play with the, the best players on a regular basis and uh, obviously also put that pressure on myself that I, I knew that I had to be one of the offensive producers. Plus, with the few years in the league, too, your maturity comes and, and you know what's expected out of you. Naslin scored four goals in five games following Bertuzzi's injury and attributes his improved performance at work to what was happening in his life off the ice. Well, I think one one of the reasons, uh, and I've said that before, is we had our first child, and my my life was so focused on on hockey that it ended up being not productive. So w- when Rebecca was born, my focus away from the rink, especially turn away from hockey, and I didn't have to analyze everything and, and think about hockey constantly, and, and that was a, a good thing for my mind. But also, I, I was at the point where I was just focused on, on trying to go out, and even though I know that it might have been my, my last shot to turn my career around, I focused on trying to find things that I enjoyed and, and was fun and, and didn't think about the, the negative stuff, and, and that made a big difference for me too. Naslin's increased production was helping to keep the Canucks in games, and Vancouver's record was hovering around 500 despite the absence of both Bertuzzi and Bure. But the Canucks' offense was dealt another major blow when McGillney injured his knee just three weeks after Bertuzzi broke his leg. With a trio of impact wingers on the shelf, Keenan elevated Naslin to the top line with Messier. Both players continued to produce individually, but the Canucks were hard-pressed to overcome the loss of that much scoring talent. Keenan was growing increasingly frustrated over Burke's refusal to trade Burry for players who could help the Canucks' cause and began using a variety of tactics to put more pressure on management to do so. Well, I think that we made some moves that will, in the long run, turn out well for us. Uh, Trevor Linden was a huge move, but uh, I think Bertuzzi and McCabe have come in quite nicely, and there's a kid named Rutu playing in Finland who can play on this team now. Uh, who had the depth of the organization when and if he is signed. And I think the Burry trade is also going to certainly impact the organization once those moves are made and finalized. I think that the team will be a, a very, very strong team. To prove a point as to how handcuffed he was behind the bench, Keenan made a brash move to get Burke's attention. And he did it in a place where everyone else would notice too. During a late November game in Toronto, the Canucks trailed the Maple Leafs 3-1 in the middle of the third period. With his team on the power play and nearly 10 minutes to go, Keenan pulled goaltender Garth Snow. Yeah, we were at Maple Leaf Gardens and uh, I looked up and all of a sudden our goaltender is out. There's only one referee back then, of course, and I looked over and there's no arm in the air. So I said to Dave Nonis, why is our goaltender out? There's no delayed call. And Dave Nonis said, I don't know. So... I realized that Mike had decided to pull a goalie. He was trying to show me up because he wanted me to trade Pavel Burry. He was getting frustrated. So he was trying to show me up. So I said to Dave Nolan, every camera in this place is going to be on us as soon as the whistle blows. So just look nonchalant. So if you go back and look at the film from that day, they, they turned to us and we're looking like watching a parade on a Sunday. With the ability to shoot at a vacant goal without the risk of icing, the shorthanded Leafs scored into the empty net to make it 4-1. When he pulled the goalie, we are all like on the bench thinking, this is crazy. I've never seen this before. A lot of mystified looks. However, after the game, amazingly, and I don't know, maybe I was sold. Maybe I drank the Kool-Aid afterwards, but Mike came in. We lost the game. And 
he threw out a couple stats at us. I want to say it was 93 or 94% of teams being down 3-1 with 10 minutes to go never win the game. And you know what? We needed to win this game. I'll roll the dice betting against the 6% and trying to, you know, increase our odds and our chances to win this game. And the way he described it, I, I sat back in my little locker where we were and I was like, you know what? Makes sense to me. Yeah, it probably was a shot across the bow and a big middle finger up the chain to the top, obviously that to Brian Burke and whatever. But Mike's explanation was perfect and spot on for me. Now, I don't know. I never went into the analytics and delved deeply to see, hey, was he bullshitting us or not? But it made sense. Brad May might have been able to accept it and move on, but Burke had a message of his own for Iron Mike. So afterwards, I went to Mike and I said, what was that stunt? And uh, he said, I, I need players. He said, you need to get Burry out of here and get me some players. And I said, Mike, I understand you're frustrated. I said, I, I'll trade Pavel Burry if and when I'm ready. In the meantime, you pull a stunt like that again, I'll beat the snot out of you. Yeah, I said, I'd drag him down the runway and finish coaching the game myself. That's exactly what I told him. Tensions were pretty high. I thought, actually thought Mike and I were going to fight that night in the dressing room. Never one to be told what to do, Burke dug in his heels and declined to deal Burry out of desperation. Burray remained firm on his refusal to play and watched from afar as leverage swung his way. Vancouver won just four times in 18 games without McGilney, putting even more pressure on Burke to fortify the lineup. Finally, on January 17th, just three days after Bertuzzi had returned to the roster, Burke sent Burray to Florida in a blockbuster. Well, we didn't make a, a very good trade. If you go back and look at it, you know, we should have made the trade without Fred Hedekin. And then it might have been a good trade. I mean, we got back good assets, but we didn't get near the value that we should have. You never do when you're trading a star. So I told John McCaw that at the time. I said, look, I'm going to make this deal because we have to. We can't keep losing. We have to make this deal. It's not a great deal. It's a good deal. But we could do much better under other circumstances. Trading Pavel was tough. We didn't get full value for him. What they did get was a bevy of assets, including a first-round draft pick. Always a great salesman when the cameras went on, Burke did his best to sell the fan base on the return for the club's first true superstar. Burke dubbed goaltender Kevin Weeks the goalie of the future, labeled veteran center Dave Gagne the key to the deal, and lauded Mike Brown's toughness. But without question, the centerpiece of the trade from a Canucks standpoint was defenseman Ed Jovanovsky. Over kind of leading up to the trade deadline, I would hear kind of names, you know, coming up and rewind a little bit more. We were actually in Vancouver at the time and I was out watching morning skate and Gar Snow skated around the rink and he stopped and he's like, hey, Jovo, what number do you want? So and I put it all together. But anyway, now moving forward to trade deadline, yeah, I didn't know what hit me. I think when you're, a, you know, the first pick and all the talk, you know, you're the kind of guy that teams got to be building around, you know, so I was in shock. There was some anger and disappointment that the Canucks didn't get more for the guy who'd been the greatest goal scorer on a team that didn't have many good ones. And, and Burray was world class. But I think there was also relief because they'd played half a year without Burray. I think there was a lot of relief when the trade was made that at least they got Ed Jovanovsky, uh, who had, again, had had kind of a quiet start to his NHL career. A lot had been expected of him as such a high draft pick, but at least there was a core defenseman coming back and that saga was over. 
Drafted first overall by the Panthers in 1994, Jovanovski broke into the NHL as a 19-year-old and was part of Florida's Cinderella run to the Stanley Cup final in 1996. Though not a generational talent like Bure, Jovanovski gave the Canucks another burgeoning blue liner to build their back end around. Vancouver's first-round selection from that same 94 draft, Matthias Oland, was offering a formidable follow-up to a rookie campaign that saw him finish runner-up for the Calder Trophy. If Jovanovski could realize his potential in Vancouver, the Canucks would have a pair of young defensemen to anchor their blue line for years to come. The way I looked at it as this team's got to keep me, this traded Burry, I'm kind of in the driver's seat here. You know, all I need to do is go out there and perform it and play well and, you know, everything will take care of itself. But anytime you're traded for, for that caliber of player, you always you know, tend to worry a little bit on how you're going to be received. But for the most part, a little bit young and dumb, not really understanding that part of it. Just want to go out there and play and show the fans that, you know what, it was a good trade for the Vancouver Canucks. Jovanovski and the rest of the Florida Four joined a team that was five points out of the playoffs heading into the NHL All-Star break. With his team now much healthier and having some added reinforcements, Keenan would have just under half a season to construct a playoff push. But Burke had other plans. I had promised Mike Keenan that I would give him a chance with the players that we acquired through the Bure trade. That didn't happen. I felt we had to make a change, even though I had told Mike we would do that. We did ended up not doing that. Uh, it was a tough time, a tough time for everybody. Exactly one week after the Bure blockbuster, Burke fired Keenan and introduced Mark Crawford as the 15th coach in Canucks history. Crawford had guided the Colorado Avalanche to a Stanley Cup over Jovanovski's Panthers in 96, but abruptly resigned after Colorado's first-round exit in 1998. He'd taken a job as an analyst at Hockey Night in Canada in the months that followed, but Crawford craved another opportunity behind the bench and couldn't resist the allure of returning to the franchise that had drafted him. Crawford had played the entirety of his NHL career in a Canucks sweater and had been part of Vancouver's first run to a Stanley Cup final in 1982. Well, they did have a good abundance of young talent. I can remember doing a Canuck game earlier that year, and it was against Nashville, so it was Nashville's first year in the league. I remember Marcus Naslin had a really good night that night, and, you know, he had had such promise coming out of Pittsburgh, and I thought that was the first time I really saw him play where I said, oh, God, this guy is, he is as special as Peter Forsberg, who's from the same hometown with the Twins and Thomas Gradine and all those great players who have played uh, coming from Orange Coast Vic. So I remember that, and certainly they had Todd Bertuzzi, Brian McCabe. You know, there was a lot of, of players there that you looked at and you said, yeah, this is a good group of young players. When they made the trade for Bure, picked up Kevin Weeks and Ed Jovanovsky uh, especially, that intrigued me as well because that was right before I had been interviewed for the job or had been you know, inquired about for the job. So, yes, it was the abundance of young talent. It was also Mark Messier, too, to, to tell you the truth. I had worked with Mark at the World Cup, and seeing him and his presence at the World Cup with all the best players from Canada, that was special. And I was looking forward to working with him as well. Well, you know, he had a championship pedigree, and he had been taught a sharp lesson. I thought he was getting a little ahead of himself as a coach. And then he got fired, and really had a comeuppance. And when, when he talked to him about, you know, working in the media, he was so positive and so engaged and so interested. And then he got a, we got a chance to hire him as coach. I think Mark Crawford was one of the best coaches that ever worked for the Vancouver Canucks. 
He was fantastic with me. He could handle older players. He could handle young players. He was good with the media. I've hired some great people. Mark Crawford's one of them. Well, Berkey thought we could still make the playoffs that year. <laughs> I remember telling him, I said, I don't think you're, you're going to make the playoffs this year. But he knew that the group had a talent base that was going to flourish in the near future. He didn't know how much some of the older players, Messier and McGilney and a few of the defensemen had. But, you know, there were some really good pieces there on defense. Adrian O'Coin was having a really good year. He was scoring a lot. And Matthias Olin was a good player. Murray Barron had just been signed there, and I liked Murray. I thought Murray was a real workmanlike player. And again, we talked about the forwards. It was an intriguing bunch. Once they build a proper relationship between coach and manager, which is what occurred when they brought in Mark Crawford, then you could finally see, okay, there's a direction here. Now they're planning to go a certain way. Are they going to get there, though? And there was still a lot of pressure on those guys to try to get the team to start winning in a hurry. Because again, the team was losing millions. There were thousands of empty seats to their games. And nothing was really going to solve that until the team rebuilt its credibility as a competitive entry in the National Hockey League. Crawford's experience with the Quebec Nordiques who moved to Colorado a year after he was hired as coach and went on to win the Cup, gave him valuable insight into what it took to create a contender. And he made it clear immediately that he expected to do the same in Vancouver. I think him coming in, it was kind of like put the foot down right away and this is how this team needs to play. He certainly was a guy that you weren't scared of, but you can see he meant business. He really had the passion, you know, to get this team on track. The one thing that alarmed me and alerted me He did say in his first meeting was, I don't care if you're a Mike Keenan guy or not. Recognizing a lot of players had been traded. It was basically a raging inferno for the last eight months in Vancouver, changing personnel. I don't care if you're a Mike Keenan guy or not. Everybody in this room is going to get a fair shake. Now, that's pretty cool to hear, right? But then immediately, he just identified 15 or 12 or eight guys in that room that are Mike Keenan guys. And basically we all talked to each other. We were like, okay, who's first? <laughs> One, two, three of us, we're out of here. They've already, he's already identified the guys that he's looking for. So you can take a compliment or you can take it the other way. May's point is well made. While the fans and perhaps a few players might've felt a sense of relief with Keenan's departure, the majority of the roster was once again back in a familiar position. Trying to earn the trust of a new bench boss had become part of the routine in Vancouver. But Crawford didn't want everyone to think he was intent on cleaning house, especially the talented younger players whom he viewed as building blocks. Players like Marcus Nasland, who had just returned from his first appearance in an NHL All-Star game after scoring a career-high 23 goals in the first half of the season. I had been very interested in him because of Peter Forsberg. He and Peter are the same age. They were good friends. And, you know, I just really adored Peter as a player. So because I felt so good about Peter, you know, I wanted to feel really good about Marcus. Well, he came up and Crow likes to joke around and stuff. I remember the first practice we had a skate around prior to the practice beginning. And he he obviously had introduced himself earlier in the locker room, but came up and he said, well, I coached a guy from your hometown earlier and had quite a bit of success with him, and I expect that success with you as well, talking about Peter Forsberg. So he broke the ice that way, and I felt that he saw me as someone that he he wanted to build a team around, which gave me obviously a great confidence boost. 
Naslin would go on to lead the Canucks with 66 points that season, 18 more than any of his teammates. His 36 goals placed him among the league's top 15 in that category. And for the first time in his career, Naslin felt secure. Having already identified Naslin as part of the foundation for the future, Crawford now had to determine who else could help elevate the Canucks back into contention. That quickly became his primary focus instead of a playoff push as injuries further exposed the Canucks' lack of depth. Messier injured his knee just two weeks into Crawford's tenure and would go on to miss the vast majority of the games that remained. Bertuzzi struggled to find his form after returning from his broken leg. He posted just four goals and ten points over 22 games before hurting his knee in early March, thus ending an injury-plagued and frustrating season. Vancouver plummeted to the bottom of the Western Conference for the second time in as many years. But there is one benefit to being bad in the NHL. High draft picks. After selecting fourth in the 98 draft, the Canucks landed the third overall pick in 1999, which put them in prime position to acquire more young talent in a very unique draft. Two Swedish brothers were seen as arguably the two best prospects in the entire class. Daniel and Henrik Sedin were not only twins, but line mates as well. Everyone saw the benefit of having them play together in the NHL, but no one had a pair of picks atop the draft board. At least not until Burke orchestrated one of the greatest draft day maneuvers in NHL history. I would normally announce who has the first election, but we have three trades to announce before we get started. First, Vancouver trades Brian McCabe and its first round pick in 2000 to Chicago in exchange for Chicago's first round pick in the 1999 draft. That's fourth overall. The phone rang, it was Bob Murray, we made the deal for Brian McCabe in a first for the fourth pick overall. And I hated trading Brian McCabe. I loved him as a player, I loved him as a kid, but that was the first part. We didn't publicize that deal until the Friday before the draft. On Friday night, we made it public, and that's when Rick Dudley and I were talking, and he hung up on me, and we swore at each other and hung up. And I went to bed Friday night. I had the fourth pick, but nothing else. Tampa Bay trades this, the first its first-round pick overall, the the first round pick in today's draft to Vancouver in exchange for the first, the fourth pick overall in 99, previously acquired from Chicago, and two third round picks in 1999, the 75th and the 88th overall. So uh, I went to bed and I was like, he better make this deal. Dudley better walk over and make that deal in the morning, Saturday morning, or I'm screwed. And that's exactly what happened. He walked over and said, all right, let's do this. The third trade, Vancouver trades to Atlanta, the first pick overall in this year's draft in exchange for the second pick overall this year and a conditional third round pick in 2000. I didn't know to around the floor. It was a sleepless night. I was exhausted and edgy and then I went over and made the other deal with Tony Waddell to get Atlanta to move up to one. No expansion team would ever pick first. Ted Turner was there. It made sense for them to move up and make a splash. What that all means, the picks in this draft one through four will be made as follows. One, Atlanta Thrashers. Two, Vancouver Canucks. Three, Vancouver Canucks. Four, Tampa Bay Lightning. The first selection in the 1999 NHL entry draft belongs to the Atlanta Thrashers. NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman revealed the results of Burke's wheeling and dealing and then made way for the Thrashers to select Patrick Steffen with the first overall pick. That set the stage for Burke and the Canucks to complete the feat that most had deemed impossible. Vancouver Canucks are very proud to select for Marshall Spink 
Team Moto of the Swedish Elite League, Daniel and Henrik Sedin. Well, the tough question now, a lot of questions whether the Sedins will be going back to Sweden and not playing for a couple of years. Do you feel confident that you'll be able to get them in the lineup next year? That's a possibility. Uh, they've indicated they want to finish school, so it might be a year, but there's still a possibility for next year, and that's certainly what we intend to try to do. Very few 18-year-olds are ready to play in the NHL. Even fewer were at that time. In addition to the increased speed of the game, players endured far more physical punishment under the rules of that era. As skilled as they were, the Sedins were likely not ready for the rigors of the National Hockey League based on what broadcaster Don Taylor and the rest of the media were hearing. People might disagree with me on this, but no way were they considered saviors. It was a great coup by Brian Burke to get them two and three at the 99 draft, which, by the way, was a weak draft other than the Sedins and a a few other players. But I always remember hearing from Sweden, guys, we shouldn't be expecting too much of them. They're not great skaters. And I'm not so sure they're in great shape either. So when you heard that, you're like, okay, good hockey players, not great hockey players, by no means saviors. Turning a fledgling franchise around is a tall order for anyone, let alone teenagers. And Burke knew that was his responsibility, not theirs. But he was also keenly aware that his honeymoon in Vancouver was over. People forget when you're in a market, especially a Canadian market, the clock in that market isn't your clock. So you might be a GM that starts in 2018. So in 2019, you're thinking, well, I missed the playoffs for one year. And they're thinking, we've missed the playoffs for six years. So their clock is never the same as yours. There's this pent-up demand for a successful team. And nowhere to go but up after two straight years in the basement. But how much improvement would this group be capable of? And who besides Naslund would emerge as players Burke and Crawford were willing to build around? Coming up on the next episode of Unreal West Coast Express. I was like, I can play in this league and I can play a big role in this league and I can be dominant. If all the stars align, you could see the talent. He was at the stage where he had to go through the whole team and then score a highlight goal and instead of knowing when to put on a show. We talked about not having a captain, but that was like a 10-second conversation because Crow was adamant. He was mature enough and had the right temperament and could handle the pressures that come along with being a spokesman in a Canadian market. You know, the way he coined it is we ended up making a transaction today. You know, it was something that I really didn't want to have to do, but I did it. I'm sending you home. I'm sending you to Vancouver. Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with Go Goat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel. Hannah Riednauer, Matthew Maniker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.